There is no proof, but most New Testament scholars say these words that have just been read are poetry, a hymn of the early church, and it does seem plausible to me. You can hear the cadence of the music as those words are read. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him things in heaven and on earth were created, were created. What beautiful music it is as we begin to live into Scripture and as Scripture begins to live into us. What better way to express it than to sing it? The words themselves take on power in the singing. And I know that you are aware of this. I've seen it in you. I've seen some of you standing here singing the hymns that have been selected on any number of Sunday mornings, your eyes brimming with tears, a hymn that touches you at such a deep level that you're not able to sing the words with everyone else. It is the power of Jesus among us. Jesus, the center of all things. Jesus, glory. Glory to his name. He was writing from prison, the Apostle Paul was, pouring out his heart, giving thanks for this young church. In its infancy, it was seeking to be who it had been formed into as a new congregation. His concern, however, was for the church, that they remember and that they not be distracted by other stories He encourages them to remember the nature of Christ, who Christ was, and what he was about. Christ, as he describes here, as our creator. Christ, as he describes here, as our sustainer. Christ, as he describes here, as our redeemer. When I parse the Trinity, I don't put all of that together in the same way that Paul has When I think about the Trinity, I think about the different roles that God plays in the form of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is our Creator, the Son who is our Redeemer, the Spirit who is our Sustainer. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that Christ is in everything. And the essence of Christ rests in the essence of who God the Father is and who the Spirit is. This is power, I tell you, to think about theologically the nature of God in this way. It lifts Christology, our thinking of Christ, to a new level. He says, he himself is before all things, and in him all things, all things hold together. If you read through the scriptures, you think to yourself, perhaps, when was this written? It's interesting to think that These words to the church at Colossae were written before the gospel of John, certainly, and perhaps all of the gospels. I wonder if maybe John did not have this in his hand as he was writing his gospel, Remembrance of Jesus Christ. 
because in the beginning of his story, he shares these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here, the Apostle Paul knows this. He's trying to say it in no uncertain terms. That Jesus has always been, he always shall be. He is at the center of all of life. Through him, God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself. Do you remember that Thomas came before Jesus as John again tells the story? And as Jesus was speaking, he says, and you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And you know this, don't you? Jesus' response, he said, I am the way. You can say this with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was trying to speak to Thomas words of what his nature was about. Immediately, another disciple came up to him, Philip. Philip also was engaging him in questioning. He says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, were created. Christ is the reconciler of everything. Over the past month, our focus has been on missions here in our worship services. And we have been reminded how Christ calls us by his great commission to go and make disciples. But every generation seems to come to a different concept of what it means to make disciples. I've been reading Mike Slaughter's writings just lately. He is the pastor of Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church. And in one book, which he entitled simply, Change the World, there is this quote he says that Jesus does not ask us to cajole people into making decisions for Christ, but to truthfully challenge people to calculate the cost of following Jesus in a lifestyle of sacrificial service. And we know that's the case, don't we? We know that Jesus died for us on the cross. There is not a one of us here that would call that into question. But how many of us are missing the real point that Jesus said to us? Pick up your cross daily. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. You and I are called to be a missional people. To remember that Jesus died to save us from our sin. He died for our souls but also he has come to put into right relationship all that he has created, everything that he has created. 
Jesus' first message in Nazareth, um, Galilee, he spoke to the crowd that was gathered there, the hometown crowd that came to listen, to him read the scripture and, and to think with them about the meanings of the scripture. It says here in Luke chapter 4, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And they loved what he said. It was a great sermon until he got to messing with them. Because he starts to talk about what that scripture means in his mind, in his heart. He refers to how inattentive anyone had been except these that were foreigners. And God worked in the foreigners' lives rather than in the chosen people of Israel's lives. Jesus speaks to them and by the end of that sermon, they're ready to run him out of town. And in fact, even kill him. Jesus' ministry was not simply to the poor. It was with the poor. He took on this as his identity. Tensions are created when you create this identity with the poor. You and I know it even to this day. That who we identify with marks our lives as well. We like to pe keep people in their places. And in fact, the culture of Statesboro has done a pretty good job of that. The poor people know where the poor people stay. The middle class people know where the middle class people stay. The rich people know where the rich people stay. Jesus has come to reconcile everything. Everything. Jesus delighted, especially in spreading the good news among the hurting the weak, and the poor. He calls us to move beyond our modern worldview of these separations in order to be his people, the community that he intended, even in the creation of the world. This is a different way of thinking, and it certainly is a different way of living. Developing relationships with people, sharing their need, working together for solutions. Poverty is the result of relationships that simply do not work. Relationships with God, relationships with ourselves, relationships with others, relationships with the rest of creation, all that is around us can be in bad order if the relationship is not as it should be. That is the case for those who are poor, who are oppressed by their situations. But you know as well as I that that is the case for those who are wealthy as well. 
that if their lives are wrecked, are absent of a relationship that is secure and deep and good with their Lord, that there is such a lack of peace and that that controls their entire being. There are feelings of inferiority that do such damage to people and rob us of shalom. A young girl came seeking assistance here at Pittman Park recently after we gave her the little bit of help that she was asking for. I walked out into the hallway before she left and in that brief conversation she said to me, she said, do you know so-and-so and she named a girl here in our church who is her same age, 20 years old she was, and she said, she goes here with, your, with her family. She's, they are members of Pittman Park, I think. And I said, they certainly are uh, members. In fact, I went on to say to her, um, this girl is uh, a student uh, in school here. And, uh, and immediately this young girl that was in the hallway said to me, she said, oh yes, she's going to make it. Her life is going to be good. And I thought to myself, how sad that she sees this friend of hers who graduated from high school with her in such a different way than she sees herself. The church, obviously. The family, too, of course. But the church has nurtured one of these girls in a way that will lead to a life that truly has the potential for goodness. But what concerns me is what happens to the one that I spoke to in the hallway. Where does she go with this? Does she believe that the entirety of her life has already been determined by what she has done to this point? The church has a responsibility. And God is looking at us to reconcile all things. Not just some things, all things to himself. George McPhee has leprosy, Hansen's disease. His face is defigured. His eyesight is almost nil. His fingers, except for one or two digits on each hand, have literally just fallen off. Leprosy is a terrible illness. George McPhee lives at St. Monica's Home for the Abandoned Elderly in Kingston, Jamaica. Isn't that an interesting name for a nursing home? St. Monica's Home for the Abandoned Elderly. And yet George McPhee is anything but abandoned in that place. In fact, the environment of that home is filled with such loving support that George McPhee is able to look at his life as oppressed as it is by disease and by the lack of things. He is able to look at his life 
through the lens of God. The way that I've come to know George McPhee is through this book, which is entitled, All You Really Need to Know About Prayer, You Can Learn from the Poor. Isn't that a great title? In this, there is a poem that George McPhee wrote. Let me read it for you. I have never made a fortune, and it's probably too late now. I don't worry about that much. I'm happy anyhow. As I go along life's journey, reaping more than I have sowed, I'm drinking from my saucer because my cup is overflowed. I don't have lots of riches, and sometimes the going is tough. I have a family that loves me, and that is quite enough. I thank God for his blessings and his mercies he's bestowed. I'm drinking from my saucer because my cup is overflowed. I remember times when things went wrong. My faith got a little thin. Then all at once the dark clouds broke and the sun peeked through again. Lord, please help me not to gripe about the tough rows I have hoed. I'm drinking from my saucer because my cup is overflowed. If God gives me strength and courage when my way grows steep and tough, I'm not, I'll not ask for other blessings. I'm already blessed enough. May I never be too busy to help another bear his load. I'll keep drinking from a saucer because my cup is overflowed. That, my friends, doesn't just happen. That doesn't happen. I can guarantee you that something good is going on in St. Monica's home for the abandoned elderly. <laughs> he has felt the love of God in that place. And because of it, his life is totally changed. Do you understand what God is up to? Do you understand? Do you understand what God is up to? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him... All things in heaven and on earth are created, are created. He wishes to reconcile all, all of creation. Will you participate in what he is seeking to do?